Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first step in solving a problem is to know that you have a problem. The first step in solving a problem is to recognize and acknowledge the problem. Now, the sinful human heart spends a lot of time and energy in denial. The sinful human heart likes to pretend the problem doesn't exist. As sinners, we try to convince ourselves and others that there is no problem. And it doesn't matter what the problem is. It might be an addiction to porn. It might be an addiction to alcohol or drugs. It might be broken relationships that need healing. It might be something else. But our sinful heart drives us to denial, to pretend things away rather than to deal with them. It's rather silly of us. It's rather infantile. Like a little child, when they close their eyes, they think that because they can't see, others can't see them. So the sinner shuts his eyes and thinks that the problem will go away. Are you doing that in your life? Is there something that you're pretending away and denying, that you don't want to face, that you don't want to deal with? Should you be going through the Conquer series? Should you be going through life renewal? Should you be in rehab? Should you be in counseling? Should you be reaching out to someone and dealing with something that you've been pretending away? Well, stop fooling yourself. Deal with the problem. It's the only way. And in Lord's Day 5, that's what we see happening. We see that the sinner finally acknowledges the problem. And we know what the problem is. We dealt with it in the first section of the catechism, our sin and our misery. And there were all kinds of attempts to minimize it, to deny it, to, to, to overlook it. But now in Lord's Day 5, there's a faint glimmer of hope. There's a crack of dawn in the darkness because finally the sinner acknowledges the problem. And this is the problem. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. That's the problem. We are at the bottom of a pit, an abyss of our own making. We are broken. We are ruined beyond any hope of repair that is in our power. And the life of the sinner, with all its pains and ills and afflictions, is but a bitter foretaste of the eternal punishment which awaits there is a huge tidal wave of God's righteous judgment poised over the abyss into which we have plunged ourselves. And from time to time, chunks of judgment break off and fall down, causing sinners to cry out in terror. And these are just a taste of what is to come. When the full burden of God's righteous wrath will come crashing down on a world of sin and will bury sinners in eternal death and destruction. That's the problem. And in question answer 12, the, the sinner finally gets real. He gets honest. He accepts the truth. This is who I am. I'm a sinner. 
This is where I am in the pit of sin, the abyss of the fall. And this is what I can expect, the righteous judgment of God, which is coming. This is what I deserve. Is there any way out? And that's exactly where the sinner needs to be. And that is exactly why our evangelism, evangelism by definition is is spreading good news. That is why our evangelism must begin at the beginning. Because when the sinner comes to understand his lostness, his fallenness, when he comes to understand that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, when the sinner understands that he is ungodly, that he is unrighteous, that he is included in that mass of fallen humanity of which God declares that there is none that is righteous, no, not one, and that for those who obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. When the sinner sees that he lives in the city of destruction and that the day of the Lord is coming, and that it is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of judgment and of wrath. When the sinner comes to terms with these truths, then, and only then, a glorious gospel opportunity is opened up. For now, by God's grace, he may be driven to cry out with the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? That's the question. How can we escape? How can we be saved? And the answer of the Bible is clear. And Paul lays it out in Romans chapter 2, that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice sin, that there is no escape from God's judgment. The Bible doesn't say to sinners, to unrepentant sinners. The Bible doesn't say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and everything's going to be okay. That's not what the Bible says to unrepentant sinners. Listen to what the Bible says to unrepentant sinners. It's right there in Romans 2, 5, where God says this, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's what the Bible says to the unrepentant sinner. God is perfect and infinite in all his being. He is perfect and infinite in his love. And he is perfect and infinite in his justice. And he's not going to stop being God in order to save sinners. He can't stop being himself. He will not acquit the wicked. He will by no means clear the guilty. His justice must be satisfied. The only hope for the sinner is that God's justice is satisfied. And that drives the questioner to question and answer 13. Okay, if that's what it's going to take, then let's make that happen. Let's Work on that, that God's justice is satisfied. Can we perhaps satisfy it ourselves? Can we pay the penalty? Can we bear the awful burden of God's eternal wrath against our sin? And the Bible says, no way, 
Not even close. Because to use a, a very weak example, our debt of sin in the celestial courtroom of God's justice is kind of like having a credit card with a $10 billion balance. And every month the statement comes, and if you've got a $10 billion balance on your credit card, you're looking at around $200 million a month in interest. I figure that probably no one here can afford that. $200 million a month in interest. We can't even afford the interest. And the sins we commit daily add to our balance. They add to our debt so that what is already unpayable becomes more and more unpayable. And that's why the psalmist cries out to God in Psalm 130. And he says, O Lord, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is clear. No one. And so we can't make the payment. That's a foolish notion. And so that drives the questioner to question answer 14. Can any mere creature pay for us? And here, he's getting warmer. He's getting closer to the answer. Because someone needs to pay for us if we can't pay ourselves. We need help. And we need lots of help. But from where and from whom? There are so many religions that involve some kind of sacrifice in order to placate the gods, to appease the wrath of the gods. But what does the Bible say? Hebrews 10 verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There are a couple of reasons for that. First, because the principle of God's justice is that the soul that sins shall die. Humans have sinned, humans must pay the penalty. And second, because no mere creature can bear an infinite and eternal punishment, because every mere creature is limited and finite. Now we sang Psalm 75 before the sermon. And Psalm 75 speaks about that, that God executes judgment in the hand of the Lord. There is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, the cup of God's wrath. The unrepentant sinner must drink, will drink, and they will never get to the bottom. It will never be empty. There will always be more righteous judgment into all eternity. No limited creature, no finite creature could possibly bear this for themselves, let alone bear it for others to deliver others from it. And so that drives us to question answer 15. It drives us to the only answer. What kind of a mediator and deliverer must we seek? Now, a deliverer, children, a deliverer, is kind of an old-fashioned use of the word because when we talk about delivering nowadays, we think of Amazon, right? Amazon next-day delivery. But that's not what deliverer means here. A deliverer is someone who saves us from a danger, 
from a problem. And a mediator is someone who comes between two opposing parties to reconcile them. And so this is the question. Who can be that deliverer? Who can be that mediator? Who can deliver us and save us from the wrath to come? Because we can't do it, and no mere creature can do it. We need someone else. We need a mediator. We need a deliverer. But not just anyone. We need one with a very unique set of gifts and capabilities. First of all, he must be a true human being. The human race sinned. The human race must pay the penalty for sin. So our Savior needs to be a human. But that's not enough because a human is limited. A human cannot bear eternal, infinite punishment for themselves, let alone bear eternal, infinite punishment of hell for me and for you and for you and for you, for each one of us. Because only the power of God can save us. Our Savior needs to be not only truly human, but also truly divine. Only the power of God can shield us from that terrible weight of the wrath of God, which threatens to crush us. And so we need a deliverer. We need Christ. We need Jesus Christ, who is true man and true God. And the more we understand that this world is slated for destruction, to be burned in the fire of God's righteous wrath, the more we will seek Christ. We will be driven to seek Christ, to know Christ, and to find our refuge in Christ. That's why it's good, even though it's a very unpleasant topic, isn't it? The wrath of God, the, the eternal destruction of those who hate God and love sin. It's a horrible topic. But it's a good topic to think about when it drives us to run to the Lord Jesus and to hold on to him with all of our might, our soul, our mind, our strength. And we have a lot of reasons for thanksgiving. But there are also lots of things to occupy our minds in these days. The world is a dark place. The nations are at war. There's evil, wickedness, corruption in high places. There are kingdoms tottering, economies failing. There are strange and fearful new diseases cropping up. There are massacres, genocides, typhoons, hurricanes, earthquakes, famines, the threat of nuclear war, the highest it's been for decades. Those are just the, the things that are out there in the world. And there's also the, the painful things that we experience in our own lives, the fears and anxieties, the hurts. All of the things in this world that are wrong are signs of God's judgment, of his impending wrath. And there are two ways to deal with them, a right way and a wrong way. Let's look at the wrong way first, Revelation 16, verse 10. If you have your Bible handy, Revelation 16, 10. And here the scripture is talking about it's describing in kind of a, a picture form how the Lord Jesus is driving forward history and pouring out judgments upon this earth. So in Revelation 16, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. So people are suffering. They're suffering so bad they're chewing on their tongues. But then look what happens. Look at verse 11. And they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. You know, unfortunately, that is the reaction of the wicked and ungodly. 
those who love sin and hate the Lord Jesus Christ. I may have mentioned it in another sermon, but I'll mention it again. I knew of a man in Brazil who was dying of a cancer of the tongue. His tongue was literally falling into bits in his mouth. And as he suffered and as he died, he shook his fist at God with the little bit of tongue that he still had. He cursed God. That's what the sinner does when these signs of God's righteous anger against sin are experienced upon this earth. That's the wrong reaction. The other reaction is the right one. We read about it there in Thessalonians, the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 9. He, he talks about how the church at Thessalonica, they turned to God from the idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the right reaction as we live in a world in which God's judgment is falling upon it and signs of his impending wrath. And as even as believers, we sometimes get hurt by those things, even though God's not angry at us, but we live in a world which is under his judgment. And our reaction is to hate the idols, to refuse to trust in anything or anyone, and to look to the living God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's how the Bible describes Christians in a bunch of different areas, a bunch of different texts. The Bible describes Christians in terms of longing for the coming of our Lord Jesus. The Bible describes us as those whose citizenship is in heaven, and from it we eagerly await a Savior. The Bible describes Christians as those who long for His appearing. Is that what you're doing? Are you longing for the appearing of Jesus? Don't get so caught up in the turmoil and the darkness of this world that you forget to await the coming of the light. Now, the Bible says that we have died, and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We, and we read that in the last chapter there of 1 Thessalonians, we are not of the night. We know that sudden destruction is coming upon the earth. We know that the wicked will not escape, but we are not in darkness for that day to surprise us like a thief. We are children of the light, children of of the day. And you notice what Paul says there in the fifth chapter of the first letter to the Thessalonians. He says this, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that we have a mediator. We have a deliverer. Jesus Christ has reconciled us to the Father. Jesus Christ has delivered us and will deliver us from the wrath to come so that when the judgment of God comes upon the earth in that flood of fire, then just like Noah and his family were floating above that water of judgment in the first flood, so we in the church of God will be floating on the clouds above that second flood of judgment of fire with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whether we are alive when the Lord Jesus returns or whether God takes us from this life to himself, we do not fear God's wrath. There's none left. Jesus took it all. We do not fear judgment. There's none left. Jesus took it all. 
Jesus has paid for all my sins. That's what God tells you every Sunday, every service, every baptism, every Lord's Supper. He's telling you the same thing, that there's no sin left, there's no guilt left, there's no judgment for you, there's no wrath for you, but that when he looks at you, he sees a child, a son, a daughter, as lovable, as holy, as good, as righteous, as perfect as Jesus himself. That's how much God loves you. That's what you look like to him in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our mediator, our deliverer. Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the last drop. And I'll say it again. There is no judgment left. That's not even a possibility. There's no wrath left for you. It's not possible. It's gone. All that's left is pure and infinite and eternal and unfailing and divine love. And that is what we await from heaven. That is what awaits us as we wait for Jesus to return and to usher us into the eternal presence of the Father and to welcome us home as beloved children of God. Only Jesus can do that. Our works cannot avert our doom. The law can save us never. Faith looks to Jesus Christ alone, who for his people did atone. He is our one Redeemer. Amen.